What is the National Health Service Corps? How does a medical student get involved with this scholarship, and what does it entail? How does a medical student choose to go into a rural health setting? And who is Sumit? Today on Talking Admissions and Med Student Life, I interview Daniela, who is a current first-year medical student here at the University of Utah School of Medicine. Helping you prepare for one of the most rewarding careers in the world. This is Talking Admissions and Med Student Life with your host, the Dean of Admissions at the University of Utah School of Medicine, Dr. Benjamin Chan. All right, welcome to another edition of Talking Admissions and Med Student Life. We've got a great guest today, Daniela. Hello, Dr. Chan. <laughs> First year med student. So um, let's talk about scholarships. So you're involved in a really cool scholarship. How did you find out about this one? Well, I first found out about this through a conversation with Dr. Chan that led me through a series of students in the medical school. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, I ended up speaking with um, a student named Leslie, who uh, is a scholar in the National Health Service Corps Scholarship. National Health Service Corps. Corps. Okay. Scholarship Program. All right. The NHSC. The NHSC. All right. I'm going to say it right. Okay, cool. Yep. And so she recommended that I apply for this because it's basically... It provides an opportunity for students who are interested in working with underserved populations to go to medical school for free. You actually get paid to go to school mm -hmm. and then commit to service in primary care in an underserved area. Cool. So tell me about this application process. What, what did it ask? Is it, there's a lot of essays. How did that go? So there are several essays, and mostly what you need to demonstrate is why you're committed to these populations of patients. And demonstrate this through your experience in the past working with underserved populations or uh, family issues or the neighborhood that you grew up in mm -hmm. or really anything that connects you to these people. If you can demonstrate that connection and indicate that you're interested in ultimately working with, uh, with those kinds of patients, then you're a good candidate. So what kind of patient populations are we talking about? So it can either be rural or urban. Okay. And in my application, I stressed my interest in working with rural populations. All right. I, I'm happy in a rural place, and they, they also take that into account because they want you to stay there. Mm -hmm. They don't just want four years and then, and then you leave. So if you're happy living in a place that's uh, very remote and uh, usually there, there are many sites that are in really beautiful areas near national parks. And so you might be the only physician in, in, the, in the county, but, but you're in a beautiful place and you have a pretty small community. Um, or you can work in an urban environment and uh, an inner city hospital. Mm -hmm. um, and I didn't commit to either in my application. I could still choose to go urban, but still, I'm right now I'm interested in working in a remote place. Okay, we're going to talk about that, but I want to find out more about the scholarship because I'm very fascinated by this. So does this mean that during your residency you have to do a residency in a rural location, or does this mean after your residency you have to move and, and, and practice and serve in a rural location? No, so the residency is wherever wherever you're matched, wherever, okay. wherever you uh, – through that matching program, wherever you end up, but it has to be within primary care. Okay. So that's the only stipulation. And then there are five divisions within primary care that they accept. What are the five? So there's pediatrics, family medicine, um, there is psychiatry – OBGYN and internal medicine. And, yeah, internal okay. medicine. But then this year they're also, I'm not sure if this is completely accurate, so I'd mm -hmm. have to verify. But I'm, I've heard. Well, we have disclaimers on this podcast, Daniela. So it's here's okay. A, yeah. Here's a disclaimer. Yeah. So I've heard that um, that they're increasing, that they're actually accepting med peds as well. Okay, interesting. And some, that's the that's a residency where there's pediatrics and 
uh, internal medicine combined. Right. So you have to choose one of those fields. You match in a residency program wherever you want to. And then at the end of your residency, then you go to a rural location. Do you get a voice, like a choice about where you get to go or who yes. decides that? So. so at the end of your residency, you apply for jobs. Mm-hmm. And um, you may be accepted to multiple hospitals in multiple different parts of the country. You can apply to both rural and urban hospitals. Um, and then wherever wherever you choose amongst those places where you're accepted, you, you go. Mm-hmm. And you have to be there. For, is it like a year for a year since they're paying for four years of med school? You're committed for four years or how, how's that yes. work? Yes. Yes. You're committed for four years and they really encourage you staying in that same site for four years. Okay. So, so you can't, like, can't go like two years urban, two years rural. That's kind of – That's looked down upon, upon yeah. because you're trying to establish a, a, a sense relationship. of – Yeah, mm-hmm. a relationship with – Do you already have a sense now about where you want to go? I'm not going to hold oh, you to this. I, che- so. I check the map all the time. Okay. All right. <laughs> so you can – there's a Google map where you can look at all of the sites where they have job listings, and this is very premature. Mm-hmm. But there's some really interesting areas, Capitol Reef National Park. Mm-hmm. and Sounds like you want to be by national parks. That's that, that would be nice, right. but but I don't know. I might I might be compelled to work in a more urban mm-hmm. environment. I haven't I haven't decided yet, so – well, we'll see. This is very cool. So how many how many are there? How many people get awarded the scholarship a year? Ooh, I think it's I think it's something somewhere around one thousand. I don't know. I actually don't know that. So number. it's a small number. It's a small number. It's a, it's it is it is competitive, and you're not competing within your school. You're competing nationally, mm-hmm. and so you're competing with students who are, who are at other schools. Um, so I heard that you, know, you have the scholarship. Leslie has a scholarship. It's actually rare to have two students. Within the same med school, I, is, is that true? I wonder. Or? Yeah, I I don't really I don't really know. I I had the feeling that having Leslie mm-hmm. um, on their radar here at the University of Utah um, sort of helped me. Okay. And so I think that the more I think the more students that apply and show interest, demonstrate interest at University of Utah, uh, the more on their radar we mm-hmm. will be. Although who knows? <laughs> who knows? So it sounds like they pay for tuition. They pay for a room and board. So they pay a stipend each month, which okay. is it's like thirteen hundred. Okay, um, and mm, that might not be enough to live off of fully, but you're taking out such minimal loans if you do decide to do that. that okay. It's, so they pay for tuition and then a thirteen hundred dollars stipend per month on top of it. Yes. Okay. Well, then they also pay for books. Books. Okay. And um, other expenses, clinical tools and things like that. Cool. So, so this sounds like an awesome opportunity. I mean, do you have to like go back? Do, is there like training you do once a year? Or do you have to go back? Are these, you know, you know what I'm saying? A lot of these programs have like these like annual get-togethers or you have to like do things a little bit. Is no, that, there's, there's really no training. You okay. do have to report back to your coordinator. Mm-hmm. And so each um, student will be assigned someone from the NHSC who's their coordinator or their mentor. Mm-hmm. Um, but really that's more of a conversation and, and also they're just kind of checking in with you. And you have to submit proof of um, or verification of enrollment, mm. which is very easy. I yeah, just did, very it, easy. did it the other day. We can generate bills for you. <laughs> yes. We're really good at that, generating bills. So. But in terms of having a commitment over the summer or after the four years, you, you don't. You just kind of go through your medical education, go through your residency, and then you have your four-year commitment. Okay. Cool. So let's talk about – you mentioned like your love of, of serving in a rural area. I mean where did that, where did that come from, Daniel? <laughs> um, I think – I think it's always been there, but I think it really solidified when I did a fellowship abroad uh, called the Thomas J. Watson Fellowship. And I was living in uh, different parts of Asia and Africa for a year and experiencing what it's like to see health 
uh, healthcare work and not work in some of these communities, and many of them were rural. Mm-hmm. And I just found that in those places, you could have such a close connection with the staff and then with with patients as well. Um, and it was just it was one of the most meaningful experiences I've ever had, and felt like this this is something I could do with my life. Mm-hmm. So. Is there is there a particular patient or a story that you like that like during your Watson Fellowship days that kind of led you there? I mean, do you have a do you have like a favorite memory during this time? Because that sounds like a really amazing experience, like Asia and Africa. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, there's there's one there's one patient in particular who who really changed my life, and uh, I ended up writing a children's book about him. Oh, cool! Um, <laughs> mm-hmm. His name was Sumit, uh-huh. and he was a little a little eight year old uh, from a very rural, very distant. Of town in India, mm-hmm. um, and he had come to the hospital. It was a leprosy hospital, but he had pemphigus vulgaris, mm-hmm. um, a skin disease. And he came to the hospital for treatment, and he was very sick when he arrived. Uh, very moribund, the, the physicians there said. Mm-hmm. Um, and he just for a few days he would just kind of stay in in his in his bed, but then he started exploring the hospital with the children, and I got to interact with him and teach him piano lessons, and um, we did some painting together, and mm-hmm. I just got to see this this child who was so, so sick um, spend four months at the hospital and become healthy and happy and running around, and, um, and then I left to go to Madagascar, and he was discharged to go back to his village, and the story gets a little bit longer, and more complicated and more tragic after that, mm-hmm. uh, but but he was definitely someone who will always will always be with me. Mm-hmm. I, and tell me about this children's book. Where did that come from? It, so it came from Sumit, and actually, it started with the watercolors that we made together. Mm. And I didn't really realize that a story was forming when we were painting together. Um, and then I left, and then I found out that he actually passed away in his village. Mm. And I was I was very struck by this. Um, and so I just continued some of the paintings that we had that we had begun, and at some point when I was in Thailand, I realized this is a children's book, <laughs> and so then I spent some time finishing it. And right now, um, I've had difficulty publishing it because it's it's a genre that isn't popular in children's literature. It's about a child with pemphigus and another child with leukemia, mm-hmm. and their unique connection and the it's it's not mainstream enough to you know sell or to publish through penguin mm-hmm. but maybe the american cancer society or some mm-hmm. of the alternative publishing houses were you able to send like a copy uh, back to his family or is that just not possible no i did okay so so he was raised by his grandparents okay and uh one of my friends lives in india and so i i gave her a copy and she, she actually brought two copies and she gave one to the hospital where he was treated and then she went all the way out to his village and found his grandparents and mm-hmm. gave that to them and she said when she when she got there she found this little shrine um of sumit's paintings mm-hmm. and um pictures photographs that we had taken and printed out and just this this beautiful little memorial for him in a hut there mm-hmm. it's amazing how children's lives can touch ours yes mm-hmm. yeah it is cool well, you know, Danielle, let's like kind of switch gears a bit. Um, you know, you came here to the University of Utah School of Medicine. We're glad you came. But I know it was, uh, it was a hard choice. And uh, we're going to kind of 
um, publish this podcast uh, at the same time when other people probably have to make that same decision. So, I mean, what went into that? What kind of like how did you ultimately decide to come here? <laughs> I remember one moment actually in in your office where I said, "Dr. Chan, this is a decision between my heart and my brain. Mm. I don't know what to do." <laughs> and you said, "We're not gonna we're not gonna sway you. Mm-hmm. You know, you can take your time." And and so I did. And I ended up making a decision with my heart. And this is a place that I love. And I've been very happy here. And the school that I was considering when I went to visit to kind of feel it out, um, I, I actually had this almost visceral reaction. I can't, I can't go here. I won't be happy here mm. because, because my heart is here in Utah. And it sounds terribly cheesy, but it really, it really that's, that's how I made the decision. It was, I want to be here. It doesn't make logical sense from a financial standpoint because – This is before you got your scholarship. This, yeah, yeah. This was out-of-state student, no scholarship, you mm. know, n- no funding available. And then I just decided to go with it anyways. Mm-hmm. And then you've been rewarded. In many yes. different ways. Yeah. In too many ways. Yeah, in very many ways. So, um, like, how has the first year gone? I mean, you're about, you're more than, you're, you're past the hump day. You're more than halfway done with your first year. How's it gone? Right. It's, it's been great. Uh, the first semester was very um, textbook ish, but mm-hmm. you don't really realize it while you're doing it until you get to the second semester when, you, when things become a little bit more clinical and we get to go to uh, primary care settings to work with physicians. Um, and become more involved in, in volunteer work. Um, but it was very interesting and, and really important to lay down that foundation last semester. And to, anatomy is so important because every time you read a clinical vignette and it talks about the spleen or other organs, you, you have a visual image of it. You put your hands in a, in, a, in a cadaver and you know where that is, and that really helps you understand disease pathology. Mm-hmm. What's been the most surprising thing about your first year of medical school? Hmm. Well, I think I, I have to take it back. It was. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the most surprising thing was that I had expected medical school to be all memorization, you know, not, not so much depth of thinking, but mostly just, you know, get this huge list of terms in anatomy and memorize them. And it wasn't at all like that the first semester. And we really, we really uh, were taught to think uh, critically about um, – topics that we were learning and concepts that we were covering. Um, but then <laughs> then this weekend, we got a drug list. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's very long. Yes. And it's a lot of memorizing. And my gosh, we don't know how to memorize because... <laughs> I, I, I do agree that uh, there is a... We try not... Like, like medical school is more than just memorizing items, but there is some memorization that takes right. place. So. Yeah. No, and I appreciate it. We, I mean, we need to know these things. And mm-hmm. there's a tremendous amount of information that needs to... Um, be retained, but I still, I guess, I still do maintain that. W- what was most surprising was the emphasis on on thinking versus memorizing. Mm-hmm. Because even now, the, the exam that we took, our first exam in the second semester um, last week, was was very thought provoking. It wasn't. It wasn't. You know, do you remember this list of um, terms? It, it was much more. Can you read a clinical case? Can you think about it? And and can you come up with a, an answer that makes sense mm. that's that's okay. wonderful so mm-hmm. um you know danielle it sounds like your experience has been really great so far i mean what lies ahead for you i mean what groups are you interested in right now i mean are you involved in these student interest groups or mm-hmm. well actually a student and i are, are forming one uh called community resources okay and this is so that 
it's 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 not so it's for it's for all medical students and anyone who's interested so that we can learn more about the resources that are available to physicians when we're working with patients who don't have many resources so things like food banks and mm-hmm. learning about foster, the foster care system so it sounds like a social work support network mm-hmm. right yeah, so, it, yeah. it definitely accessing is. resources in the community like shelter food Pain, heating legal, bills, gas bills, yeah. legal bills, like things like that. Or, things like that. Yeah. Things like that 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 we don't really know very much about, mm-hmm. but we'll we take we'll, for granted on a certain level. Yeah. We'll need to use, uh, what, especially if we're working with these kinds of patients, mm-hmm. where, whom I will be working with, and and Alex as well. Um, very cool. Or, I mean, does that kind of come from the same experience of your Watson Fellowship, or? It, it it actually wasn't my idea, mm-hmm. so but I completely support it. We'll give a shout out to Alex. Give a shout out. Or to I'll Alex. have to have her come on the podcast. Yeah. All right. Um, but but yeah, it's something that really resonates with me, and I I would love to learn these things as well mm-hmm. as um, you know provide access to this information for students in our class. Cool. How does one go about forming a student interest group here? What does that entail? It's a it's a long process, and we actually we're, we're not completely sure if we're going to form an official student interest group or a branch off of um, the HMSA. Mm-hmm. Um, Do you know what that stands for? Because I don't recall. I, I don't either. All right. It's for the ether. All right. It's for the ether. <laughs> so so it's, it's, a, it's a bunch of technicalities, and we, we don't know exactly how we're going to affiliate our, our group. But uh, to make it an interest group, you have to um, go through uh, – you, you have to go through an application process. You have to find a mentor who will be willing to uh, come to some of your meetings. Mm-hmm. You have to outline um, – uh, uh, you have to form some kind of a procedural guideline for how meetings go mm-hmm. and and delineate tasks and roles. Mm-hmm. So it's a, it's a lengthy process. Do you – I mean I assume there are more students interested in this than just the book. Yes. Deal. Okay. I mean do you have to have kind of a, a, a succession plan because when you go on and graduate, do others – I mean can a student group go dormant if not enough people are interested or do you feel like there's enough – interest that will carry through i think yeah. i think it's important enough mm-hmm. and the idea is is interesting to enough people that it will always be here we just have to figure out the best way to organize it and to 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 find um events that we can plan that are meaningful mm-hmm. and um interesting to students and then also helpful to the community because it would be really great if we could go and volunteer in some of these places mm-hmm. as well um, Are you interested in global health at all with your background mm-hmm. in India, Madagascar, Thailand? Yes, for sure. Now, the, the National Health Service Corps is is domestic, so mm-hmm. that's something that will happen in the United States. But I find that you can learn so much through living abroad and experiencing what health is like in these hospitals um, that will be relevant in mm-hmm. some of the underserved areas. Because I – so – during your med school time, you can go and do these foreign trips, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, you're not limited to stay in, in the U.S., but that's only for when you practice as an attending. Right. Know. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. So, and I don't know if they would discourage or, enc- or encourage it. I think you could argue either way mm-hmm. because it, it would – what, what you would learn in some of these places in, in India or um, the University of Utah has a program in – uh, Ghana, and there's another program in Ethiopia. Mm-hmm. Um, what you would learn in these places, you could definitely apply to the kinds of communities that you'd work with mm-hmm. through the National Health Service Corps. Danielle, I just know there there's more Sumits out there waiting <laughs> for your help, whether here or abroad. So, Well, Danielle, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you very much. <laughs>
Thanks for listening to Talking Admissions and Med Student Life with Dr. Benjamin Chan, the ultimate resource to help you on your journey to and through medical school. A production of the Scope Health Sciences Radio, online at thescoperadio.com.